Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome back to another week. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, So today, we have a few questions around concentrated stock positions. Mm. Concentrated stock positions. Yeah. It's like when you own a whole bunch of stock. Yeah. One company stock. Mm-hmm. From Concentrate. Yeah. It's like orange juice. Yeah. Um, but no, it should should be, hopefully it's going to be helpful for you guys out there. Um, we work with clients with stock compensation all the time. So um, it's kind of right in our wheelhouse. Yeah. You get this a lot when someone works obviously for a company and part of their compensation maybe is stock compensation. You get this a lot when people have early success in an individual stock and it's fun. And so they keep investing more and more and more into that stock until one day it's like, oh my gosh, everything I have or almost everything I have is here. What do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And I, just as a, as you're saying, as a kind of as a reminder for those of you who maybe don't have stock compensation in your life, it basically, it is, as we said, stock compensation. It is a form of payment from an employer for the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just oftentimes we can let it grow on our balance sheet. And it, while it can balloon to be a nice asset, it can also kind of be a liability mm-hmm. just because of the risks that are inherent with get, if it becomes too big of a part of your, your portfolio. So we're just going to chat about all those things today. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And we have a, a, actually a couple questions that go with we this. We do. The same line of, I guess, questioning or same principles between them. But let's start with the first one and then we'll go through that and then get to the second one. Yeah. So the first question is um, from, we're going to say from someone anonymous. Uh, we always welcome your questions. If you want to be known, just let us know. If you don't, let us know that as well. Um, for this, it's uh, my wife and I have been blessed with good fortune uh, through ESPP, which is Employee Stock Purchase Program, and RSU programs, restricted stock units across four different employers. We've always been a buy and hold investor. These companies now have significantly unrealized capital gains and represent almost 50% of portfolio value and have a strong dividend cash flow that could provide income during job loss. Um, we live in California and are in top tax brackets and would like to effectively diversify without losing over 50% to taxes. Okay. All right. Good question. Thank you for that. And I think we've got a whole bunch of places we want to start with this. Yeah. And and before even starting with what we're going to talk about, of course, is the risks, talk about what to know, talk about taxes, talk about that stuff. I think we also have to realize you you can build a very substantial amount of wealth with concentrated stock. Sure. Like anything, you can, it's going to be much faster to create a tremendous amount of wealth if you own just one stock as opposed to a well-diversified portfolio. But with that comes obviously the risk of that. There's no guarantee, and with yes. that upside potential comes a lot of downside uh, p- potential as well. And so, start with that. I think so often people will say, "Why would I diversify? I've had such tremendous success." Well, that is always a possibility. Like that's you. 
a lot of people have tremendous success. Yep. It's about how do you protect that and how do you really understand what's needed from your investments. So let's Yeah, I just want to touch on that a touch more. Two things come to mind for me when you brought that up. One is we've talked about before about diversifying and building a global portfolio and why we do that. One of the key components of that is trying to pick an individual winner versus trying to just pick all of them so that you can just make sure you win, right? Mm-hmm. And when we looked at the the stats on that, it's like if you miss the top 10% of winners, like your return is horrific yeah, all around, right? So one of the things that happens when we work at a company though is we almost always feel like we're an awesome company, right? Like we really believe in it, especially if it has a track record of growing, how could it ever not grow, mm-hmm. right? That and and I actually that reminds me like my my mom worked for Motorola. Um, you guys might remember Motorola. So they they made they made walkie talkies way back in the day, World War II, right? Uh, but then they got into the cell phone business, big, and they were crushing it. I don't know if you remember the Razor flip phone. Yeah. The really thin one, right? The coolest I, phone I ever hit the market I, at the I time. definitely had one. Yeah. Not not because mom worked there, but just because it was an awesome phone. Um, but then they fully missed the switch from digital and from analog to digital. And for the last their stock after that 2000 peak didn't um come back until this year. Mm. It's a long time. Yeah. So if you were on that trajectory of like everything's great, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna hold it. Well, now you just had to wait 20 years to be wrong. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and uh, it's like these it, are the things I worry about for our clients. Well, and it's easy for us to look back at that and say, well, of course, who would have put, put their money in Motorola at that time? Like, look at the impending revolution and the way things were going to change and yada, yada. But at the moment, yeah, the razor was crushing it. No one was thinking that. No one was thinking that. In you the know, same way, you look at these incredible forever. companies today and say, how on earth could these companies be dislodged? Well, we, we were talking about this before, but this, if you look at the top companies in the S&P 500 every single decade, yeah, rarely is it the same companies right. that maintain that place. Right. In top companies, it changes. So there's always something that something new that comes around, something unexpected that dethrones the the incumbents. And so it's just it's hard because the other thing, like you're saying, is I've yet to meet a client if if they're working at a startup or if they're working at a new company, and it's hey, should I participate in my stock program or should I buy company stock? Almost a hundred percent of the time, they they really believe in their company. Of course, otherwise they wouldn't be there. Yes, I think my company's going to do great. I really like the what we're doing, and it, but it's. It's so hard in the present moment to understand what's going to happen in the future. And I'm rooting for them to do great. I always am, right? But I'm like, it's kind of like, um, to me, and this is my view on it, it's kind of like when I go, if I go to Vegas for fun with my buddies, I'm not going to take our net worth to Vegas with me. Could be fun. (laughs) Could also be very not fun, yeah. Right? Like maybe there's some percentage of my net worth where I'm like, okay, we're going to roll the dice with this. And so long as it, we're going to give ourselves some guardrails. And so long as with it, you know, our, our liquid net worth is within, you know, typically we're usually seeing like five to 10%. So if you have a million dollars, right. Mm-hmm. So long as we're at a hundred thousand dollars or less, like we're good. Yeah. And then as your net worth scales, you can grow that. Um, honestly, like the one, the person who it doesn't matter for is the person who's already set for life. Yeah. Because then you are kind of paying with that, playing with house money at that point, right? Yeah. If it if it goes to zero, your life doesn't change. Yep. Well, that's yep. fine. Yeah. But that's I think concentration versus diversification. I think is a key component for this chat. 
Uh, absolutely. And so to relate it back to this question, I like the way you framed that because if you're just getting started or if you're, or I shouldn't say that, if you are about to retire, let's use an extreme example. Yeah. And you have, you have, you've, you've run the numbers, you talk to your financial planner, you've got enough money to retire. Right. And you, you just hit that. Yeah. And a hundred percent of your money is in your company stock. That's a big problem. It's a very dangerous position to be. Yes. Like you don't want your retirement to be contingent upon however that company does over the next 30 years. You want to have a very secure retirement. You don't want to be worried and checking your stocks app every day of how is this company doing? Can I stay retired? Right. But if you have more money than you know what to do with, and you've covered your retirement goals and your legacy goals and your home purchase goals and your college funding goals and all that stuff, and you have that in a diversified portfolio and then some, what the risk there is a lot less. You don't really care anymore. You care. You're basically playing with fun money now. Yes, you've you've checked the boxes, and that's money that you can give yourself more permission. Now, if you want to do the best you possibly can do with it, you might still want to have a more diversified approach. But if it's just I just want to play the game and I want to be able to have some fun, then it's not as significant. But to your point, going back to this listener question, where I would start with this would be: obviously, I know you don't want to. You know, the client ends with the you know the person writing in. Pardon me, ends with I don't want to lose fifty percent to taxes. Number one for me is they're probably not going to lose 50% to taxes. Mm -hmm. There's probably some cost basis in this. So um, can we just chat through briefly what cost basis is, like how we should think about that? And they mentioned restricted stock units and ESPP. So maybe we'll come at it from from the standpoint of both of those. Yeah, let's, um, let's use an example. And now this listener mentions they live in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, no idea what company it is. We know the company's done well. Let's just assume Apple, just for the sake of we'll an just example. Just pretend. Yep. A large employer here in California. I'm with you. As this listener was in the RSU program and receiving stock, as that stock vested, he paid taxes on it all. Yeah. So, like, yeah. if you let's just make you, you let's make uh, uh, James is now working at Apple. You're getting restricted stock units. You just got paid. $10,000 worth of stock on a specific day. Yep. The moment that happened, they made you pay ordinary income taxes on that money. Right. And then they marked the value of the stock the day you received it. Right. So whatever that price point was, that's now your cost basis. So when you sell, you don't have to, you just have to pay for the price. Let's just make up a number because we're, we're really making up number. Let's say the price at that day was $50 a share and now the price is $100 a share. Yeah. Well, you only pay taxes between the 50 and the 100. Right. You don't pay taxes from the zero to the 50. Right. Does that, does that make, am I Yeah, yeah you're paying taxes on the gains, not on the entire amount. And I yeah. think maybe what some of the confusion or, or the 50%, when those RSUs vested, if you're in the highest income tax bracket in California, you very well may have paid 50% between federal taxes, yep. state taxes, uh, and, and all that. Yep. But on capital gains, the absolute assuming they're long-term, meaning you've held these shares for at least... 12 months or more, the the max that would be at the federal level is 20% as of this recording. Now, literally, as we're recording, they're yeah. talking in Congress about what's that number going to change to, if, if anything. But totally. as we speak, 20% is the max federal level. And then California tax is the top tax bracket there. So 12, 13% potentially, plus 3.8% uh, net investment income tax as well. So yeah. it is taxes, certainly, but it's not going to be 50% of the portfolio value. One, because there's going to be some cost basis there, meaning money that's already been taxed. Yep. And two, the total taxes, unless these are short-term gains, probably aren't going to be quite 50%. Yes. 
I think the first thing that I would do in that instance with this um, particular person, if they were a client, is just help them understand what would you pay in total taxes if you were to sell it all at one time? Mm -hmm. And what would you keep? So they can just understand that first of all. Yeah. Yeah? Yep. Because we we really shouldn't let taxes wag the dog, in my opinion. Like we don't we don't want to let taxes make us beholden to taking more risk than we should. Mm-hmm. Fully agree. Because the it's the thing about taxes is no one likes paying taxes. No. And it's and it's a guaranteed reduction in your value. When I sell, yes. I'm guaranteed to have 30%, 40%, 20%, whatever it is paid in taxes. Yes. The hard part is that's a given, whereas if we keep the investment, it could easily go down 20%, 30%, 40%, but there's nothing guaranteed about that. So we almost have this optimistic thinking of, oh, if it keeps going up in value, then I'm really not losing anything. I'm not paying any taxes. And if that's the case, then awesome. Like If if we knew for a fact these stocks were going to continue going up, do not sell them. That's a very easy decision. But we don't know that. And so it's not as if not selling avoids a potential loss. It's just not a certain thing like taxes are. Yes. And it's the other thing is it's, you know, the, the absolute worst case scenario is like an Enron style, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's over 20 years. So not many people are even thinking about it anymore, but you had a company that was basically duping their employees and investors into building what they were building. And it went from, you know, being worth a lot to being worth nothing overnight. And a lot of employees were caught holding that bag. And so like the worst case scenario matters, Yep. Um, but what also matters is how will diversifying help you step into your own version of financial freedom more safely with, and I can't say faster because you can't promise it's going to be faster mm-hmm. um, than doing individual stocks, but mm-hmm. you can definitely do it sleeping better at night because you're not overexposed. Well, I, and I think I was just about to say that the sleeping better at night portion, I, I've, you know, Qualcomm is a local employer here in San Diego. And I've had a number of clients over the years working at Qualcomm. And even in the years when it was doing incredibly well, and on paper, things were going incredibly well, there was never that sense of peace of mind because it's always worrying about what's tomorrow going to bring, what's right. next week going to bring, what's next. And, and there was always this nervousness. Yes. And so I'm getting this from this question as well. If there's probably not a tremendous amount of financial peace around this, even if the stocks have done incredibly well, because you know you're one bad quarter, a couple bad quarters away from- You're just, you're exposed. The key to me is you're exposed when you don't have to be, mm-hmm. but there is a price to pay to not be exposed. Yeah. And that's taxes. Yeah. 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 And and there are ways, and we've talked about in other episodes, can you mitigate those somehow? Can you make sure you're doing things like maxing out a 401k or an HSA or doing some other things to take advantage of deferring taxes or reducing taxes? Tax loss harvesting was a, a recent episode that we did. So are there things that you can do to minimize that as much as possible? Yes. But the longer you don't do that, the more you open yourself up to other risks outside of just taxes. So why don't so what this really gets down to is for this these four stocks we we also mentioned ESPP that's employee stock purchase program where people are buying at a fifteen percent discount so there's some ordinary income there as well even after you leave your employer that you just have to track it gets really complex really fast from the tax side of things but I think the key is make a plan so one just know get all your cost basis together get all the positions 
look at if you were to sell it all right now, what would your overall tax bill be? Just yeah. number one. That'd be like ripping a Band-Aid. Yeah. Right? And then just look at how would you feel knowing you have this amount of money to go put to work? Now, the that's not necessarily the answer. It's just an extreme answer mm -hmm. where the other extreme is do nothing. Yep. And then in between, there's all these different choices that we can make. Yep. Which include things like you were saying, like how do we make sure we're op maximizing everything we can do to drive down income to put ourselves in a place where it would make sense to sell? Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. if you know next year one of you is going to take a sabbatical, for instance, and have time off, and you're going to be in a lower income bracket as a family, that could be a wonderful time to move out of these positions. Yep. It just it all the answer is it depends, and it depends on the life you want to build for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with that being said, are there some? Let's assume, for example that this is me we're talking to and I have all these stocks and I don't know how to get out of them. Yeah. If I've made the decision to maybe start selling some of them, not a hundred percent right today, but start the process of doing that. Are there some things I should be looking for just in terms of the order in which I should look to start selling? Yep. So I, I think that the first thing I would want to look at is, um, and we didn't, we didn't really look at this at all, but it's um, where one is just, where are the assets held? Because mm -hmm. like, for instance, some employers will have, you can purchase their stock through their 401k plan, at least a lot of the larger firms, especially back in the nineties and early two thousands. Mm -hmm. So you may have funds that are easy to diversify, right? That don't have a tax consequence. Yep. Um, I'm guessing that's not the case for this question. For this question, I would look at what is my, what's my lowest cost basis and what's my highest cost basis assets, mm -hmm. Right. So highest cost basis just means if the price today is 100, but I own shares that I have a cost basis of 95, well, and it's long-term capital gain, I only have to pay on the taxes on $5 a share. Right. 95 of it, I don't. Right. Well, I might have another tax lot where I own a, a $50 a share that we talked about earlier, so I have to pay on $50 of taxes. Right. Well, I'd much rather sell the one that I only have to pay five. Yeah. Let's me diversify faster. Yeah. And if... It like I said, if we're, if we're committing to not selling 100% right now, but we want to say, how can I maximize diversification and minimize taxes, mm -hmm. then that's the best way is sell the shares that have the highest cost basis because that means there's the lowest amount of taxable income relative to the number of shares you have or the relative to the value of the shares. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, another thing would be like, I, it'd be, it's a discussion and you'd want to see a tax return as well from families. That's why we request tax returns for our clients, one of them. Do you like to gift to charitable, don make charitable donations yeah. on an annual basis? Maybe one of the things you choose to do here is you choose to accelerate your charitable giving while you're diversifying and you use the low cost basis stock for the, for the donation. Yep. So you're driving down your taxes overall in that year by giving, um, but you're also selling more stock in that year. And you're creating a little bit of room in the giving. Taxes. If you are charitably inclined and charitable giving is a part of what you do, absolutely. There's some great strategies with that, like what you're saying. And you even using like a, a donor advised fund or getting a giving yeah, account exactly. involved where you are gifting those shares, taking the full deduction to the oh. donor advised fund. You still have control over the funds that you can gift over the next several years or however long you want. But that's a great way to offset a lot of the tax impact and still do a lot of good with your giving and just maximize the tax savings from that. Um, and then also long-term or short-term. Now, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these gains from this listener are long-term gains. I mean, they've yep. been held for a year or more. Yep. But any shares that you've had or that you've that have vested or that you've purchased in the last 12 months, and 
less there's a loss or really not a whole lot of gain on there, maybe those are the ones you sell last just mm-hmm. because you might end up paying almost double in taxes if you realize a short-term capital gain as opposed to a long-term capital gain. Absolutely. And I think the other things are, if, if it's because it's a couple, what percentage do they feel both feel comfortable holding as individual positions? Yeah. Right? That's really important. Yep. Um, and then making, if you know you need to get, if, if the answer is we need to own less, what's our plan going to be to get to less? Let's create a plan with it kind of puts some guardrails in place for us where if it's whether it's over a period of time, every quarter, we're going to sell so much until we get down. And then we're kind of dollar cost averaging out of a position. Yep. It's one way to do it. Maybe we just choose to do it all right away with, and maybe we do some donor advised fund giving this year to help mm-hmm. make that happen. Um, or maybe we choose based on price movements. If you want to, uh, to me, that's getting pretty technical, pretty fast for a lot of people, yeah. but maybe you go like, Hey, when it reaches these price points, we're moving out. Yeah. So you're, but you're choosing to divest over a period of time. Yeah. yeah. Or based on some metric. Yeah. I like it. Um, I think the other key is having a plan of where you're going to put the money and why that is a key because otherwise you sell and you congratulate yourself and you pat yourself on the back and then it just stays in cash and you yeah. don't do anything with it. But so. for that, like put yourself it that comes back to all it depends too. like, what do you guys want to be building toward? Is this money going to be used for a down payment on a home? Well, how will it feel to know that down payment's there, ready and available? That you probably do want to keep as cash if you're buying yeah, in the near yep, term. Yep, disregard everything uh, I said. But if it's for, but if it's for like your future, your you know your future uh, financial freedom, you want to go get it invested and know that it's there working for you right yeah. away. Yeah, very much agree. Uh, I think this would be a good time to tie in the question that a lot of us already answered, but the second part of this question, yeah, the second part, a separate second question. Because it ties into this. And this is from Zach. And Zach says, hello, I need some advice on what to do with my investments. I currently have around 4,500 shares of Apple. This makes up about 54% of my total stocks. I have 2,200 shares in my investment, aka non-retirement account, which makes up 100% of this total. I want to reallocate some of the Apple, but it will have serious tax implications, especially within my non-retirement investment account. What do you recommend? So a lot of what we just talked about, of course, there. I think the difference here is this actually illustrates that point we made of what do you sell first? Yeah. Short-term versus long-term, high basis versus low basis, qualified versus non-qualified. Yeah. Right off the bat for Zach, right now Apple makes up a little more than half of his portfolio. Right. If he sells all of that Apple stock though, it's not as if 100% of it is taxable. No. About half of that is in a retirement account. Right. Which is great because if you sell shares in a retirement account, it's all either tax-free or at least tax-deferred. Mm-hmm. So one thing right off the bat that we could look at here is you could effectively take the Apple stock from about 54% of your portfolio to probably closer to 25% just by selling the shares in your retirement account. Now, you still have a lot in Apple, but you've mitigated about half of the risk in doing that. Yep. So- that would be something to look at. Now, I would go back to what you were talking about, Scott, is come up with a target percentage of how much do you want to have an Apple? Yeah. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 0%. Who, who knows what it is? Exactly. But let's say, for example, you said, you know what? I'm comfortable having 25% in Apple stock. Well, then this is very easy. You yeah. sell the shares that are in your IRA or 401k or wherever it is, and you're there. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it's not investment advice telling you to do that, but that's just, an illustration of what that could look like. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is 
less than that, maybe I only want 10% in Apple stock, well, then, of course, this looks a lot different. But it's yep. getting you closer to that. Then you need to go back to the low basis, high basis, long-term, short-term, and make a plan for yourself to, to get out of it. Right. Um, I, I will say another thing that happens with taxable accounts that's helpful um, is when you do sell and you know what your taxes are going to be from a federal and a state standpoint, just earmark. If you don't have those funds saved elsewhere on your balance sheet, just earmark those funds right away to pay the taxes. Yep. It just makes you feel better knowing that it's already covered when yep. the tax bill comes in April because it's going to come. It is going to come. That is true. Yeah. Uh, cool. I think the rest of that question was answered because these questions are so similar. And and by yeah. the way, thank you very much for submitting these. This is very helpful for Scott and I to re- direct our conversation. I know helpful for other people who are in similar positions. Absolutely. But anything else that you would add to that? I the second question or anything else? It, it comes back to, it depends. It comes back to understanding your own, the risks that you're taking by owning a concentrated position relative to diversification, which we're huge fans of and understanding your taxes. And knowing what your your taxes are, and and also, but just also, you want to you want to optimize for taxes, but you don't want to let taxes drive your decision making. Fully agree. All right. Well, I think that was good. And unless there's anything else, no. We'll have a great week. Time. Yeah. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.